Welcome to the Radical Departures podcast, your source for startup storytelling. We're your hosts, Abby and Chris. You'll hear informative discussions full of valuable expertise and actionable insight on the issues you face when launching and growing your startup. This is Episode 9 of the Radical Departures podcast. Our guest today is Timothée Robourg, co-founder and CEO of Sealed, an up-and-coming French startup that's developing a user-friendly encryption tool for messages and files. During university, Timothée participated in the exchange program in technological innovation and entrepreneurship at the University of California in Berkeley, where he was able to learn valuable lessons about building a company and could allow his entrepreneurial visions to take shape. In this episode, you'll hear how Sealed works, how Timothée and his co-founders decided to grow the business, their approach to raising money, and why they decided to put international markets in their sites from the get-go. So without further ado, here's Episode 9 with Timothée Robourg. My name is Timothée Robourg. I am a French entrepreneur. I'm the co-founder of uh, Sealed which is a cybersecurity company co-founded by four French people now one year ago. And we started the project uh, two years ago in an entrepreneurship program called Learn to Launch in uh, UC Berkeley. And, uh, well, basically, the question was, why did I um, start this project? Why did I choose to start a company rather than being employed by a big company? Basically, that's the idea. Uh, well, first of all, I don't want to work inside a big company. <laughs> uh, you don't want to be just a mindless number, uh, employee number 4 million, <laughs> please come to the front. <laughs> yeah, that's the idea. And, um, well, in Polytechnique, I did two internships, and both of them I chose to do them inside startups. So the first one was in a startup, in French startup called Legal Start which basically do, does all the formalities of creating a company and redacting contracts and so on automatically. That's useful knowledge then that you picked up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And uh, the second one was in uh, machine learning, a company that did machine learning on uh, well, advertisement and things like that. Uh, it was more uh, research internships to uh, discover all the technologies. And, uh, well, I knew that I didn't want to work inside a big company because I know I can't be managed. <laughs> 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 well, that's a trait of character uh, I know is uh, bad about me, but it's good when you're an entrepreneur, probably. So I wanted to be my own boss and to decide what I want to do because it's useful to do that. The Ecole Polytechnique is a military school, mm -hmm. uh, so I know about uh, hierarchy and things like that. But uh, whenever they asked me to do something that I didn't think it was useful, I didn't do it. And that's impossible inside ah, a, a mm -hmm. company. So that's why I very difficult And I'm to surprised you didn't opt for the military, too, with yeah. that. Uh, well, I, um, I'm not an anti-military, but... Um, it's the hierarchy that you don't Yeah, like. I, I, I like to understand what I do, and yeah. in some part of the military it's totally possible, but I was in the ground army, right. so that is not possible. <laughs> uh, for eight months. It was very interesting, but I knew it was the worst possible way to learn about hierarchy and management yeah. inside big companies. But, well, I did my experiments there, and I thought that I wanted to be my own boss. And 
About the space, the area of cybersecurity, well, I don't know if you know about GPG, which is an encryption tool that uh, goes way back to uh, the 90s, which was uh, first written by uh, Philip Zimmerman in, uh, in uh, 1991. And I used this program, uh, this encryption program, when I was 12. It's always been kind of, uh, not an obsession, but a passion about encryption, because my father uh, works in a company, he's a CFO of an IT company, and when I was 12, I was asking him, well, do you encrypt your email? <laughs> and he said to me, he told me, well, no, I don't care. And uh, when I showed him uh, how to do it, he told me, well, are you kidding me? It's way too complicated. You have to install something in command line, then use it and uh, click uh, 23 times to encrypt the document. Well, <laughs> it's impossible. So it was always an idea in the back of my mind, and I knew I wanted to solve this sometime. And, well... Because I did this entrepreneurship master uh, program, I had to come out with an idea in this uh, program in Berkeley. I came with uh, Mehdi, who, who is also a, a student from the Polytechnique. I know it from there. And uh, we met uh, with uh, Maxime and we had to come out with an idea. And, uh, well, Mehdi also likes uh, encryption and this stuff. So, well, we said uh, ourselves, well, we are going to try to solve this problem. And basically, that's how it started. Right. And Maxime, who is a former student from uh, Paris-Dauphine University in business intelligence, is not an engineer, so he didn't know much about encryption before. Uh, but uh, he has a friend who is called Dan and who is a penetration tester. Basically, he's a professional hacker. It's really his job. Basically, mm -hmm. he's paid by a company to hack into a company and make a list of all the flaws that he used. Right. Right. <laughs> That's the basic idea of his job. And so he was on a, we onboarded him onto the project when we were in Berkeley, right. still, uh, still at UC Berkeley. <coughs> and, uh, well, that's how the team was formed. And did you guys, when you divvied up the various roles, you said, okay, uh, I'm good at this, you're good at this, and kind of divide and conquer... Yeah, basically there were three uh, areas at the beginning. And the first one was the um, coding the client, uh, coding the, the main programs. That was uh, median my job. About the server and uh, all the encryption protocols and things like that, it was uh, Dan's job because he knows about uh, security more than the math behind uh, the security. Uh, so he knew how to integrate uh, a server uh, with uh, strong protocols in place and how to integrate them with a company's uh, infrastructure. Right. And uh, then finally, I think the most important uh, member in, in the team, because we are three engineers with someone who is not an engineer. Right. <laughs> right. And that's basically, well, the cornerstone of the team. If we do uh, a program with a bad UX, a bad user experience, it won't be used. So right. uh, Maxim is basically the guy that hit us when we, we proposed that uh, we make a 10-step a ten uh, <laughs> thing in the program. So he tells us, make it zero step or one step, and, yeah. <laughs> and he basically uh, manages to make the UX as smooth as possible for someone who doesn't care about how the, uh, an encryption tool works. Right, which I think it's a good thing. A lot of times my experience has been sometimes products here are more developed 
by engineers, for engineers, and sometimes users struggle. <laughs> and you know, that's kind of the difficulty. If a user is not going to use it, then sure. the point? there's yeah. not, you know, you're going to be really dead in the water. Yeah. Uh, so it's good to have somebody like that that says, it's... hey, you know, uh, make it idiot proof. Or uh, in the past, uh, you know, I'd talk about plug and play versus plug and pray. And you, know, <laughs> you, want, you want, you know, plug and play. You want the stupidest person in the office to be able to Boom, use it. It's not the stupidest. Not the stupidest, but you know, you want... The, the less interested in security. Yeah. The least interested in security. You, you want somebody that, you know, if people have to do too much, like, uh, I don't know, I'm going to move on to the yeah. next thing. Yeah, and that basically we started with a product that uh, enabled uh, people to encrypt messages and, mes and files in literally one click. And we uh, tested it and we realized it was too much. Right. Because uh, the, we were asking people that are not that aware of security problems to think about it when sending a message right. or an email or a file or whatever. It was not the, the amount of steps that is uh, really a problem. It's having even a step, right. even one step. So we are currently uh, working on um, a feature in the product. It's more designed for uh, companies uh, that have uh, a chief uh, information security officer right. uh, that tries to enforce uh, security policies to everyone. So basically he gives out uh, papers, uh, five pages papers, uh, telling, uh, well, if you uh, are sending a document to this company, you have to encrypt it with this complicated tool and so right. on. So he gives out rules and nobody reads them. Right, right, <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know the only time people see those things is when something goes wrong, they're like, sent out that five-page memo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, wait, wait a minute, uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So basically, we, we want to replace this kind of security guidelines yeah. with uh, a tool that is uh, for the CISO, the Chief Information Security Officer, where he designs the rules inside our tool. So basically, if you are sending an email out to this company, uh, it should be encrypted. And when the user, the employee in the company, uh, writes uh, an email, uh, for example, we are working on uh, Outlook or uh, Gmail, when he writes it, when he types it, it will automatically detect that it should be encrypted and will encrypt it without asking the user. And so that... So it's a zero-click encryption tool. And with that, how do you protect that encryption? Because once it leaves... This is, uh, well, the magic of encryption, basically. It's uh, the most uh, common uh, encryption algorithm is, uh, for asymmetric en encryption is RSA. Uh, basically, what you do is, uh, okay, we are two persons. We will uh, each generate a key pair, and we will each have a private key and a public key. So you keep your private key, I keep my private key, and we exchange public keys. Right. And with your public key, I can encrypt you something, that you, only your private key can decrypt. Right. And so basically, uh, when I send an email to someone, I will encrypt it for with his public key for his private key. And I know that only his private key will be able to decrypt this document. Right. So when it leaves, uh, for example, if you use Gmail or Outlook or whatever, the mail server that you use won't be able to read it. The right. mail server of your uh, recipient won't be able to read it. Anyone that gets into it won't be able as well. And only the computer on which uh, the recipient has his private key right. will be able to decrypt it. And so is there some kind of traceability? Can you then see who opened it, when yeah. they opened it? That's kind of uh, new in the area of encryption because when a mathematician designs encryption protocols and algorithms, he will try to make it as anonymous as possible. Right. And that's uh, something we abandoned right away because we said what we want is a, an encryption tool for companies right. and companies don't require anonymity 
you want to know when uh, an employee sends out a document to someone else. You want it to be signed. You don't want them to be able to say, no, it wasn't me. Right. You want this proof. So the anonymity, we abandon it right away. And with this anonymity abandoned, we could design protocols for uh, exchanging the keys that enables us as an encryption provider without being able to read documents or uh, nor being able to have the keys to decrypt those documents. We are able to know where, when it's opened. We are able to revoke. So I can send you a document. You can open it. And I can, can click on a button and you won't be able to open it anymore. Okay. But you've downloaded it on your computer. Right. So that's uh, kind of a strong way of controlling documents outside of your company because any kind of company, you have your documents inside, uh, inside your IT infrastructure. But when you send out emails, often it's not encrypted. But when it uh, reaches the recipient, this guy can do whatever he wants right, with it. Right, right. And so uh, in uh, most uh, consulting companies, for example, the guys uh, put it on a Dropbox or, right. or keep it for uh, using it later and yeah. so on. And what we provide is basically a tool for the, these companies that, uh, okay, we have a six-month mission with a consulting com company and you can use those documents for six months. And then I hit on a button at the end of the mission and all the documents that I've sent you, you can't read them anymore. Right but you've put them on your Dropbox if you want. I don't care. Right. I don't care how you handle them, but you won't be able to open it anymore. Right. And that's basically the use case that we're trying to solve without uh, having the hassle of using, uh, I don't know, uh, there are some tools that provide this kind of security, uh, that, this kind of control, not security, uh, such as uh, data rooms. Basically, you, go, you put all your documents in one place and you have to read them from this place, uh, from this right. website, right. and then you can revoke the access to the website. Right. But we don't do that. The documents are not stored on our servers. Uh, they are stored on your computer, on right. whatever you, you want, but it's controlled by the, by the exchange of the encryption keys. To me, it's a really cool area because it gives a lot more comfort to larger organizations who want to take advantage of the benefits, you know, the cheapness of and the quickness of going to the cloud. Yeah. How do you get the word out? How do people find out, hey, there's a product that does this? Because it's, you know, that's always the toughest thing going from I've created a product to here's a prospect and then here's a customer. Sure. That's a tough, that's always the toughest thing, getting the first couple yeah. under your belt. How do you find those people? Um, How do they find you? At the beginning, we do it only by networking. We have uh, some companies uh, that uh, reached out to us uh, because we uh, spread the word in the, the right uh, networks. So uh, it's an automobile company in France that uh, reached out to us and told us, well, we have this problem, can you solve it? And we told them, yes, that's what we do. Right, right. That's <laughs> cool. uh, so we are uh, currently working uh, to make uh, a proof concept with them. If it reveals uh, viable for them, we will deploy to the whole company uh, in the beginning of next year. And we have, uh, like that, four companies that are pretty big in uh, many uh, industries that uh, are in exactly the same case. Right. Uh, and we want to, well, prove with these companies that our product works, uh, improve it with them. Right. And then when we have four companies that have still deployed uh, on their uh, IT infrastructure, we will, first of all, upsell them with uh, additional features that we can provide, for example, authentication. Today, uh, there are many companies are selling SSO, so you have to remember a single password. Right. And what we want is to remember zero password. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Except the password of your computer. Right. That's a cool thing that we can upsell them. 
And then we want to use the, the intrinsic virality of our product. Because, for example, when a company that works in the automobile industries, it relies uh, on many other companies and right. sells to uh, other companies. And so, basically, if you want to protect all the communications with uh, their clients and their... Uh, their suppliers. suppliers and, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. the word I was looking for. Uh, their suppliers, there is an intrinsic virality and we will go to them and tell them, well, you work in the exact same industry as this partner of yours and uh, he uses that, you should probably use that as well. Yeah. That's basically what we are uh, currently trying to do in the automobile industry in the... Um, also, the consulting firms are a good... Uh, a good uh, yeah, because they're talking to a lot of people. They yeah. tend to know what the pain points are, yeah. what are the, you know, what's happening, all the ugly details. That, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, and people sometimes are quiet, especially with something as sensitive as that. I always found those kind of people don't like to, I mean, for obvious reasons, you don't want to let the world know, hey, by the way, <laughs> we just lost all this data. Because I know I used to hear these horror stories, usually from consulting companies that say, yeah. okay, don't push it, but this is what happened. Yeah. And they uh, know. I've met a lot of consulting companies, and some of them told me, well, we have strong security protocols in place, but they wouldn't tell me what it was yeah. uh, really and some others were uh, really transparent and we are currently working with them and told me well basically our all our consultants used their uh, private Dropbox to, for uh, exchanging documents with oh, that sounds clients. secure <laughs> that sounds great nothing can go wrong there <laughs> so so we are uh, trying to work with them to protect well First, um, even if it was uh, their private Dropbox, they could secure it uh, with our tools. And uh, also, uh, even with their uh, standard tools, uh, they are in the cloud, and it's not necessarily really secure right. by design, because the server in the cloud has the documents, has the information, the sensitive information. If it gets hacked somehow, all the data is lost. Uh, for example, I've seen uh, an example uh, recently. I think well, I've seen the article uh, this morning, actually, but it was in, back in uh, 2015. It was the um, Norway database that uh, was uh, put on uh, IBM Cloud. And uh, I didn't know that they were doing a cloud, actually. But yeah. <laughs> and uh, they gave out the link to uh, someone else, and it contained all the addresses, photos, and phone numbers of all the special forces in the army. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> ouch. Oops. And also, the um, I found that funny, the um, <laughs> maximum weight that bridges could hold. And apparently, it's classified, because yeah. in time of war, it's yeah. uh, very important to know what... What kind of bridge hold? Well, this kind of stuff that we could protect, and uh, it would uh, even if a link is given out uh, within information in it, if it's encrypted, only the people that are allowed to see it right. could de decrypt it. Now, one thing that struck me: you guys studied here, you went to the states. There's lots of French people, lots of people from Europe that set up their company in the states, or a lot of times in London. You know how Americans are with France. Ah, there's no business there. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so why did you start your business here? Because you guys could have opened your business anywhere. Yeah. And um, why did you do it here? I think there are two main reasons. The first one is that the French uh, startup ecosystem is uh, thriving. Uh, with uh, Macron uh, as a president right now, he uh, provides. Uh, he tries to help uh, this ecosystem and the with the BPI, which oh, is yeah. the uh, public bank for uh, investments. 
well, that's best translation mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I could uh, I could make. Uh, well, they uh, provide help to uh, many companies, and they are often quicker to send the money than uh, investment funds. Right. And so, well, we have all the the, the resources we need from uh, France to build the product to make the first proofs. Uh, and it costs way less than in the U.S. For example, an engineer in France uh, is like uh, 40,000 euros a year. And in the U.S., it's more like 150. Yeah. On top of that, uh, in the U.S., if you try to sell a product to big companies as a French person, you won't succeed. We went to the refiners uh, because we don't want to stay in France. Uh, we want to go uh, international quite quickly, but... Uh, we have to choose the first place where uh, we make uh, our first proofs. And we think that in the U.S. it's very complicated because we don't know uh, how to sell to American people, American companies. It's way more uh, expensive to build it uh, there. And uh, basically, uh, we know what resources we have in France. And I think, uh, well, the France ecosystem is thriving and it's a good moment to start a company in France. I think in the States, if you showed up to an account with your red Make America hat, great, it would, I know that would really not work well either. (laughs) Uh, It's not doing too well for the U.S. (laughs) Now, you talked about BPI, and I always hear a lot of really positive comments about BPI. What did you guys do with them, or how did you, Um, how does that process work? Okay, so basically you have two parts in uh, BPI. The first part is the grant part of the BPI, and then there is the investment and banking part of the BPI. So for a moment, we are uh, talking to the grant part of the BPI. So basically, uh, okay, you have a bit of money uh, in the company. We will uh, give you uh, a bit more uh, freely without, it's not a debt, it's not an investment. So it's a way to kickstart a bit the company. It's really helpful for uh, small companies. And then uh, when you grow bigger, there is uh, this investment part where the BPI can uh, nearly double every investment you have or in debt, or uh, in uh, capital. So, for example, if I uh, had an investor, they could double with uh, at the same conditions, so uh, in capital. And uh, with a certain amount of funds uh, in the company, I could uh, ask them to uh, give me, uh, to lend me some money. Right. And uh, if the company crashed, I wouldn't have to reimburse it. Right. And they do that very quickly. They are very responsive and uh, very helpful to when you have a problem. Uh, they uh, try to with the, the because you have to fill out some forms uh, to ask for this money. It's still uh, an administration, but uh, they are really helpful and try to push your file uh, up for a decision and that is really quick. And for example, uh, the thirty thousand euros uh, grant that we had, they took their decision in two weeks, wow. and we had wow. the funds three days later. Right. Right. So in two weeks and a half, we had 30,000 euros on the right. bank account. I mean, it really runs contrary to the, you know, the Anglo myth of, oh, France can't do business, there's nothing, it's a terrible place. And, and what's interesting with the BPI is that, well, all those helps existed before. Well, uh, 10 years ago, you could ask for uh, this kind of money, but it was uh, all in very uh, different uh, organizations, different right. administrations, and right. it was completely unreadable. Under uh, François Hollande, they decided to well, gather uh, them under the same name. Right. You have a single uh, person that you talk to inside the, the BPI, 
and uh, he will tell you, okay, uh, so you can have this grant, you cannot have this one, and so you don't fill out forms uh, right. stupidly mm. and uh, right. hoping for the best. Right. So it's really helpful. And some people say it's stupid that the government is giving out some money uh, to uh, companies uh, like that because it's basically our taxes. Because they are... F- two parts in the BPI. The grant part, okay, it's giving out money for free. But the uh, investment part basically makes out, uh, makes some money because right. uh, it's an investment fund. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, a bank. So uh, they have interests and uh, return on investments on the investment they make. So they make a, a bit of money that goes back and into the grants. In, yeah. And they reinvest and some of it goes into the grants. Yeah. So it's nearly a closed cycle. Yeah, and when companies are successful... That means, you know, when people are buying things, yeah. they're making tax money from it. I mean, it's not... Yeah, it's a good way of kickstarting the ecosystem in France, and it's, it's apparently working. You guys are looking to get a few customers under your belt and then to grow beyond that. How do you see growing? Do you look at it and say, we're going to grow the company organically, make money, hire people, make money, hire more people, or are you going to go out... Are you looking at raising capital from yeah. uh, we are, someone? We are currently uh, looking at uh, raising some capital because uh, when we deal with uh, big companies, we need some uh, workforce that is bigger uh, than what we currently have. Right. So if we hope, because we are hoping to get those contracts, we are currently raising some capital with uh, angel investors right. to build a stronger team and that is able to uh, have clients and, uh, and maintain uh, what we do for uh, those clients. And then when we have not too much capital, because it would be suicide to uh, raise too much money, too much yeah. capital right now, because we don't have many clients. Right. We have one, actually, right. Right. <laughs> uh, currently, uh, which is a, a good thing. It's, it would be suicide because the, the valorization of the company is way, uh, well, too low compared yeah. to what we could hope in one year. Right. So uh, basically, we want to bridge uh, until we have some customers and then scale the company quite quickly uh, in France and in Europe. Uh, with this uh, investment and probably uh, quite quickly as well uh, to the US because right. uh, well when you do cybersecurity you don't have borders well for all software companies uh, today it's really hard to be narrowed down to a single country right uh, so we don't want to stay and die in France right uh, right, <laughs> right it's a, France i always found was a tough market as a startup it's not necessarily the corporate world, I never found to be very progressive. They were really slow to buy. They were complicated and risk-averse. That's not the feeling I have. It may have changed, but they take their uh, decision quite slowly. But uh, now that uh, there are many startups and so on, yeah. uh, companies have uh, nearly a process for uh, testing startups. Right. Uh, so uh, you do an experimentation on uh, 50 persons. If, if it works, you scale to uh, 1,000. And right. if it works, you scale to the whole company. Right. And so they have those processes in place. Even the French administration... Uh, because we talked to the Ministry of Finances, right. and uh, well, we were uh, too young when we talked to them, uh, but um, they have a process in place that uh, they can uh, pay uh, an experimentation, a proof of concept, and if it uh, reveals successful, well, it scales uh, to the whole ministry uh, quite right. quickly. Right. So I think it has changed. Right. Well, that's good. Yeah, it's yeah. really good. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, because it, it seems like that's always the struggle. I know we've talked to some French companies. They have some customers here, but they kind of grew tired of, oh, the market is really slow. 
Yeah, but, well, the market is small it's uh, compared small to, to the yeah. US. Uh, and when you have the French market, it's a, a whole new world when you try to target another country in the in Europe. Right. Because it's uh, other rules, another language, right. another culture. Right. So um, the French market for us is really a, a way to build our first product to uh, make uh, our first proofs and uh, know that our product is good enough to uh, scale uh, elsewhere. So we will grow organically uh, with the clients we have that uh, work with uh, other European companies, uh, but we won't try to uh, go to Germany and uh, have uh, the whole of uh, Germany, but right. we will more try to go to the US and yeah. uh, try to attack the market from there. Yeah, and uh, the US, the ease of the US is it's even a little bit smaller than the total EU, but it's one language, it's yeah. one culture, and that's always the difficulty in Europe is Germany's Germany, France is France, the UK, yeah. uh, you know, it's a lot more difficult. Yeah. Overall, it's a great market, but it's really it's fragmented. Local. Yeah, it's, it's very fragmented. It's very, it's very fragmented, and, uh, and for us, uh, well, it's a good place to start because it's uh, cheap to work here, and we yeah. will keep the engineering team in France all the time because uh, I think... Uh, we know how to work with uh, French engineers, and they are cheaper than American right. engineers. Right. Uh, but we will have a front office in the US with probably some engineers to uh, integrate with uh, the uh, company's uh, infrastructure. But uh, all the uh, core development will be uh, done in France. Right. Now, just out of curiosity, would you guys say you lived out west? Would you think when you open a US office, oh, we'll go to the West Coast, go to the East Coast? Or it's a question it... we have because yeah. uh, most uh, cyber security companies are more on the East Coast. Yeah. And um, Is RSA, where are they? Are they I Boston no or idea. something? Or? I, probably. I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. I don't remember that. Actually, it's not the first one that uh, came up with uh, this algorithm. In a uh, British secret service that uh, mm. came up with yeah, uh, right. this algorithm five years before, but nobody knew it. <laughs> <laughs> It's funny. Uh, well, anyway, in the East Coast, you have more banks, more uh, insurance companies. And, um, well, basically, those are more the, the companies that will uh, be our clients. Yeah, uh, the so majority of the population is east of the Mississippi. Yeah. It's only a six-hour time difference. So I know having worked with California companies, yeah. it's a pain in the neck. <laughs> Nine hours is a real pain in the neck. Yeah. It's really, when you've had it up to here and you're ready to go home... They're just waking up. Oh my God, I can't believe this. Oh no. They're too peppy. You know, they've had their coffee, they're excited, and you're thinking, make the day end. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't yeah. know if we are, uh, go east or uh, west coast, uh, but it's a problem for us in one year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm curious what your experience was like with the accelerator that you did, the refiners. Um, How did you choose that one? We had three choices, two French accelerators and a French-US accelerator, that is the refiners. Mm -hmm. And we chose this one because uh, we wanted to test a strategy in our product uh, that was uh, testable there and not in France. It's um, We wanted to provide an encryption tool that is one-click encryption, uh, so very simple to use. And we wanted to credit bottom-up in the company, like maybe Slack did. But uh, we, that's where we realized that, um, well, it's very complicated to make everyone in the company aware of uh, security problems. And even if you get one people in the company, he won't spread your tool. Right. As may, Even if it's really easy to use, he won't spread your tool to the whole company by himself. So we decided not to go further uh, with this idea. 
and uh, the accelerator, well, they were great. Uh, they were really helpful. They helped us um, do this test. We were hoping that it would work. They helped us pivot uh, to uh, another uh, value proposition and the structure, our pitch, our uh, value proposition, uh, literally. And um, they introduced us to a lot of people. Uh, for example, in the month of uh, September, we uh, were introduced to, uh, I think, 150 people persons uh, that were are, are part of the, the refiners network and uh, well if they uh, hadn't been there for us and hadn't uh, challenged us we probably wouldn't be here uh, yeah. right now yeah it was really a good thing retrospectively uh, I think it was a bit too early in the lifetime of the company because we didn't have the product finished at right. the time right. we hoped that it would be finished but we didn't manage to finish it uh, so we finished it there uh, so we coded, we met people, then uh, we go, went back to coding and we were alternating between uh, meetings and coding. So it wasn't that optimal for an accelerator program. And then when the product was finished, we realized quite quickly that it wasn't the best way to uh, go inside a company. So I believe that it would have been more helpful uh, six months uh, later. But that's also part of the process. You yeah. learn as you go right. and... Uh, it's still a good experience because you, sure. you learn something from it. And you actually raise a good point because somebody else that we talked with, we were discussing working with an accelerator. And it was a matter of depending on who you spoke within the startup, you had different views of it. And sometimes you see people that say, oh, this accelerator brings all of these prospects. They bring all this. And what we've seen from some is that there's a poor conclusion to that, which is they have this and it's a matter of they have this, but you have to take advantage of it and you have to go into it thinking, okay, this is there. It's They're not going to just drop it in my lap. I have to really work that group. And that's a mistake that some organizations have made where they get, they do have that but they don't realize you still have to work that. and You're still an entrepreneur when you go into an accelerator program. Yeah. It's not because you are an accelerator that you will succeed. It doesn't work that way. We give you the tools to succeed, yeah. uh, as many tools that they have, but uh, if you don't use them, it's a failure. Right. So we tried our best and we uh, took advantage of uh, as many resources uh, as we could. And with that, uh, we came back with this stronger realization that, uh, well, uh, security is very hard to make bottom-up. Right. We changed our product. We did uh, some new customer discovery. We built an, a new way of presenting our product. And we currently have uh, some experimentations that uh, are being made, being done with big companies. So right. it's on the right track. What kind of things have you learned talking with big companies? I know for me, I typically see big companies love... Uh, the famous CYA, they want that audit trail, you know, cover your ass. When the shit hits the fan, I want to have that document that says, I did it. I'm not the guy that gets fired. <laughs> Bill, Bill did not have that done. It's Bill's fault. Uh, I mean, is that what kind of things do you get from talking to large organizations? Because they, they... Large organizations, well, love this audit trail uh, yeah. that we provide. Especially when they make sure it's Bill's fault. <laughs> Nobody exactly. likes Bill. Nobody likes him. <laughs> So this is the, the first thing. And then uh, the way that we integrate with their communication tools is seamless enough that uh, people will use it. Right. Because they currently have encryption solutions uh, right. deployed, but nobody uses them. Uh, so uh, Is that the biggest differentiator between you guys and other things is 
like nearly all the companies we meet uh, have an encryption tool installed on all the computers. Right. But, uh, well, they don't have another trail, so they don't know if they use it or not. Right. But when you meet with the people in the office and you talk to them and ask them, do you know you have an encryption tool? Right. Well, it stops the conversation because they all say no. Yeah. And when they say yes, uh, how many times did you use it this year? I don't know. <laughs> Probably <laughs> once. Uh, so uh, the audit trail is really interesting for uh, the yeah. administrator. Uh, the uh, seamlessness uh, of our tool is very interesting for the employees because they don't have to think about using uh, an encryption tool. And a third point that is really interesting for uh, these organizations is that we switch from one encryption protocol to another. Uh, if both the uh, sender and the recipient have sealed installed, so uh, have a public and private key and they can exchange them, it will do uh, the safest encryption possible, the end-to-end -end encryption. And if the recipient doesn't have sealed installed, we'll still provide a workaround to send, well, it's not as secure, but it's secure enough. Right. It's at least more secure than sending it in clear text. And so we provide them with two ways that uh, of encrypting that switch from one another automatically. Right. And the conditions of using uh, one or the other are defined by the administrator. So uh, nobody's surprised when there is a problem or uh, when using it. So how much hand-holding do you need to do with a customer? And maybe this is something that's evolving when the customer says, yeah, I want to run a test. I'm going to set it up in this small environment. Is this something you need to go on site and yeah. help them with? Uh, yeah. For now, I go to meetings myself. I convince the person I have uh, in front of me to uh, test my tool. And then I have to go and convince the guy that... Uh, redact the budget uh, to uh, yeah. add a line yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and then I have to go myself uh, to uh, well install it with them, explain them how it works and then make sure that everybody uh, is uh, onboarded on the tool so that the tool uh, itself uh, has a tutorial to explain how it works but uh, mostly uh, it's transparent so uh, right. there's not much to explain uh, for the end user but yeah, for now, we are in a phase, phases that where in which we are doing as much and holding, uh, right. as you said, as possible to uh, gather as much feedback as possible yeah. and uh, to know where are the pain points of the struggles of our clients and then uh, avoid them in a more lean sales process that uh, we are building, that uh, we are not trying to have 100 clients right now. We are right. trying to have... Uh, four or five right. that uh, are really happy right. and uh, that we know uh, perfectly, and then we will reproduce uh, the right. experiment with uh, other clients. Yeah, because odds are good. If you solve the problems of four big customers, odds are pretty good. That's going to take you 90%. Maybe you need to do little things for other people, but that's going to be 90% that you can take to yeah. the Fortune 5000 or the Global yeah. 5000. It's, you know. And one thing that is really difficult in this process is that we don't want to be a consulting company. And when you are uh, coming and telling, uh, well, I will build you uh, this uh, specific feature yeah. uh, for your product, yeah. you have to judge if you will be able to reuse this feature. Yeah. Does anybody else care? Yeah. For example, if uh, a client asks me uh, to uh, build a Lotus Note integration, yeah. I think I will refuse. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very basic... Does Lotus Notes, does anyone still use it? Yeah, uh, McKinsey still uses it. I used to work with a very large consulting company 
and they this was a few years ago and they talked about lotus notes i'm like what <laughs> what <laughs> who in the what you guys need help <laughs> you need help so yeah so that's we try to judge and we try not to overfit with uh, clients and right. uh, if they have two specific demands we yeah. will refuse yeah. them and try to give uh, sell them less right. but that that is reusable yeah just send them to a doctor lotus <laughs> notes this Are is you? not this yeah. is not an example we've had but, <laughs> but uh, it'll happen it'll happen it will happen <laughs> i've got a great doctor for you he can <laughs> he can talk you through this he can help your problem one question that always comes up in Paris is, you know, Paris is, comparatively speaking, it's a really small city. It's not like, you know, American cities go on forever. London goes on forever. And Paris, you've got that hard divide with the periphery. Office space is a freaking nightmare. It can be really, really hard. And now you have like, uh, okay, there's Station F, there's where's WeWorks is over here. You have uh, all these different places. I mean, how do you guys decide this is like, did you look at Station F? Did you, have you thought about um, Station F? We did look at Station F, but we didn't apply. We are uh, currently uh, incubated at uh, the Telecom Paris Tech Incubator. Right. It's, uh, well, really cheap. For us, and uh, actually, well, the uh, office space in Paris is not that complicated. It's a bit expensive. It's like 250 euros per person per month. Right. In uh, nearly all office spaces in Paris. Right. Uh, so, well, uh, it's not much of a problem. And with Station F, it will... Uh, Bring it down. Yeah, because yeah, it's, it's a massive it's, place. Yeah. It's enormous. So, so it's not a problem we've had uh, so far. I hope we will find a solution. Yeah. Uh, when uh, the incubator uh, will uh, let us uh, in the wild. Yeah, because yeah, it seems like when you're really small, it's easier, and then you hit a certain divide yeah. line where it's like, okay, then you're... I need you're, my yeah. office space, and uh, I need it for uh, 30 persons, and it Yeah, that's me. where it really changes yeah. fast. Yeah, I haven't uh, thought uh, about that uh, yeah. yet. Yeah. We are uh, four right now. We will probably scale to ten uh, until uh, next year. Right. Uh, but it won't m be much more than that uh, at the beginning. So open space is, is good enough for us right now. Now, one question is sort of going back a bit. There seems to be a pitch competition going on in Paris every night. There's <laughs> something going on. Do you guys do those and do you get much value from those? We do some. It uh, attracts mostly investors and uh, acceleration uh, programs. And uh, at the moment, we uh, do have a relationship with uh, enough investors. It works more by networking with them to attract more investors than uh, going and find totally right. new networks. We are introduced to the right networks, I right. believe. And uh, for acceleration programs, uh, we know uh, which ones are the best right. and uh, which one we don't want to get. And what do you look for? Because I think it's really difficult when you're small and you're trying to grow and you, know, you want to build your business, you want to get help from an accelerator. There's a sea of them. How do you find what works for you? Because sometimes I find people jump in too quickly. There's a couple accelerators where people mention the name, you go... We are uh, discussing with one uh, right now, uh, and uh, what uh, the process we've had for uh, deciding or not to go with them uh, was by testing them on the problems we have. Uh, so uh, the problems we have is uh, make sure that the experimentation with the large uh, companies that uh, we are targeting will work well. The exertion program team actually uh, found me a meeting with a large organization, 
went uh, with me at the meeting and I saw the value in this, well, basically consultant, right. uh, startup consultant, uh, right away. Right. And uh, also they uh, help with a big network that uh, we uh, were not introduced to or not as good as uh, we thought. And basically when we pivoted to um, large organizations as uh, our primary target, uh, we uh, needed help to, well, structure a sales process and that's what we tested them. So you were very methodical about this yeah. is what we want and... yeah. I think if you go in an acceleration program or uh, you seek uh, help uh, somewhere, if you don't know exactly what you want to get out of it, you won't get out yeah. anything of it. Yeah. So yeah, being methodical to test them as a first uh, experiment and then uh, know exactly what you want to get out of it. Guy that I had worked with used to tell people, if you want to go to work with a startup, spend a lot of time with them, ask them questions, go to talk to one of their customers yeah. and see how do they engage with the customer. And it makes a lot of sense. As I think sometimes people are in such a panic, they're worried about everything and they just have these guys are here, they're, and they go with them. And uh, Yeah, and it's a really, really bad idea. To, it's a big decision yeah. and you don't want to make the wrong one. In France, uh, you have the uh, trial period. When you uh, go in a company, it's more for the employer, the company, to test the employee, but it's also for the employee to test yeah. the employer. So uh, there is this trial period uh, that uh, is good for uh, vetting who you work with. Because yeah. uh, unless you do a trial period before that where uh, nobody is paid, and yeah. uh, well, you won't get much out of it. Yeah, but, uh, yeah absolutely. I'm just curious about your name. How did you come up with the name? Sealed. Yeah. Well, it isn't our original name. Okay. Uh, our original name was uh, Stash uh, because okay. uh, it means uh, mm -hmm. to hide something and it's in a hiding place. And it's also uh, a kind of pun with a mustache. And, well, it was funny for us. So it's more of a code name at the beginning of the company. And when we uh, created the company, we received a... Uh, a letter of uh, another company called Stash that told us, uh, well, I have the brand, uh, so uh, change your name. Uh, <laughs> so we tested all the names uh, possible and the best that we could uh, come up with was uh, Sealed, uh, which is uh, basically we seal files and mm -hmm. documents and uh, messages and we uh, ensure a signature of, uh, of the uh, sender and we ensure that it cannot be opened if the sender uh, doesn't want to. It's basically uh, how we came up with that. And um, in France, actually, it's not the best name. Mm -hmm. uh, a bit of time, we realized that people called us Sealde. You also <laughs> left off the E at the end. Yeah, of... because uh, it's a kind of hype. Yeah, I was going to say, this is a popular thing now to yeah. leave letters out. Okay, that's funny. Uh, and uh, actually, uh, if you just decided to have uh, the word sealed, mm -hmm. it's very difficult to make it a brand mm -hmm. because uh, it basically describes uh, what we do. Mm -hmm. And it's impossible to have a brand that describes what you do. Okay. If uh, Apple sold apples, it couldn't uh, have Apple as a brand. Yeah. But since they don't sell apples, yeah. uh, they can have it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard getting a name. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's so hard getting a name. Once you have one, uh, stay with it. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't change much, I think. Well, thanks a lot. Thank yeah, you. thank you very much. That was really interesting. You guys, somebody at the beginning of this uh, journey, and you've done a lot, but there's a big project ahead. Yeah, sure. And a lot of potential. We, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's very cool. Well, thank you. That wraps up another episode of the Radical Departures podcast. Thanks for listening. 
subscribe to our feed on iTunes. And join us next time on Radical Departures. 